0: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From ingenious gadgets and audacious plots, to missions where the stakes were high and the risk to life even higher. British espionage efforts in the Second World War are endlessly fascinating To answer your questions on this subject for our Everything You Wanted to Know series, I was joined by the historian Helen Fry, an expert in British intelligence in the war, whose books include MI9, Escape and Evasion, The London Cage and The Walls Have Ears. Thank you so much for joining me, Helen, um, to talk about World War II espionage. Before we begin... Obviously, this is a huge topic, but hopefully today we can offer listeners an introduction to this subject, after which they might be able to go away and find out some more themselves. So with that in mind, give us a sense of the breadth and the diversity of espionage operations in the Second World War.
2: Oh, it's absolutely huge. And for a historian like myself, who's been engaged on the research, you just begin to realise how enormous the operations were. So, not just on the home front, and we think of places like Bletchley Park and RAF Medman, which was actually gathering aerial intelligence, but also, of course, all those operations behind enemy lines, the brave agents of the Special Operations Executive. You have all kinds of intelligence missions, deception. When we talk about intelligence gathering, of course, and espionage. It's a whole raft of activities, and it can be from bugging people's conversations. It could be MI5, bugging suspected spies, or bugging the conversations of German prisoners of war. It could be cracking Hitler's Enigma codes, listening into transmissions. But it's also ordinary men and women acting as couriers, handing messages behind enemy lines, conducting sabotage sabotaging railway lines, could also be somebody just working in another part of the country, listening out for any enemy spies that might be trying to signal back to Germany. There's a whole raft of material, a lot of translation work, if we've got intelligence reports. So a lot of language skills required German and Italian, of course, because Italians were in the war. And the running of spy networks, we've, mustn't forget those vast networks in enemy occupied territories or whatever period of the 20th century and a lot of that was done in the early days of course with good old invisible ink and I love this I've actually seen a sample of a letter where the invisible ink has been developed and you can still see the secret message because it's been developed and that letter was over 100 years old and I loved it it was fabulous To stumble across that in research is really exciting. So I think that gives us a sense. It's the classic espionage that we think of, cloak and dagger, hiding in shadows, secret meetings, meeting agents on the corner of a hotel, something like that. So some of that world, the world of John le Carré and Ian Fleming, tips into the real spy world. It is vast and it's operating in all theatres of war because the idea is that whoever wins the intelligence game will, in in the end, win the war. So it is all about intelligence and espionage. That's what's going to win us the war ultimately. So it's worth
0: mentioning at the start, isn't it, that we'll touch on espionage in different nations, but your specialism is British espionage, isn't it?
2: Yes, primarily, yes, secret operations here, although it touches a little bit. I've moved a little bit into behind enemy lines material. But yes, primarily I've uncovered some great new operations that helped us to win the war, yes. You mentioned a minute ago that espionage
0: can be found really in all arenas of the Second World War. Can you give us a few examples?
2: Yes, so one of the uh, key examples would be those double agents men and women who were sent into France, into Spain, where i talk primarily at the moment about Western Europe, and they were to carry out all kinds of deception, get close to some of the German intelligence officers, the Abwehr, the German Secret Service. There was a branch of military intelligence hours called MI9, and MI9 helped to run the escape line, so this is separate from deception, But there were escape lines across Western Europe, the Far East, the Middle East, and men and women behind enemy lines would help get our airmen and soldiers back. And those same escape lines were used to, well, with couriers and uh, mountain guides, they would also smuggle out intelligence. And most of them came out of Western Europe over the Pyrenees, often very high, tiny donkey routes. It's all a bit cloak and dagger, and on the other side would be one of MI9's men, uh, Creswell, he was codenamed Monday. He would be there waiting to pick up our guys who were escaping, but also if there was any intelligence. And this was really important, actually, because they were bringing with them, the airmen and soldiers were bringing eyewitness accounts of what they saw, behind enemy lines as they were being transported across Germany or when they were escaping across France. So that just gives you a couple of ideas. The deception is really important. We have to make sure that Germany is fooled into thinking our main invasion is not the D-Day beaches of Normandy, but actually it's further up near Calais. Uh, And the same with Italy and Sicily. The Germans were fooled into believing that the invasion was going to take place further along in Greece. So this was really important, deception and intelligence gathering. So we'll delve into a few more specific operations in a little
0: bit. But before we do, let's rewind a bit for listeners. Jamie Gartside on Instagram has submitted the question, were spy networks already well established before the start of the war?
2: Yes. So they might be different spy networks or they might be reborn. There were, if we go back just to the First World War very briefly, there were operations behind enemy lines run by the founder the early form of what today we call MI6 so the secret intelligence service had men and women behind enemy lines going into belgium into luxembourg smuggling intelligence out some of them knitting codes into jumpers and scarves i love all this stuff and an intelligence officer kind of decoding this um bringing back eyewitness accounts of what's on the ground. So, yes, we had spy networks in the First World War. And absolutely, in the 1920s and 30s, we have the threat after the Russian Revolution of 1917. We've got the birth of communism and the Bolshevik Revolution essentially undermined democracy. So we needed to monitor Russian spies and agents. And then in the 1930s, there was the dual threat, the... the, further threat, if you like, of Nazi Germany. So we had spies embedded all across European capitals, but particularly in the main headquarters in Vienna. It's like a web. And the early form of MI6 would have its key heads of station in European capitals and elsewhere in the world. And those figures would actually run their own agents, their own spies, and send intelligence back to London. So this is going on. It's a long game. Of course, it goes way, way, way back, thousands of years to biblical times. There's always been espionage.
0: And I'm guessing that this is the same with other nations too. So we've got British spies embedded across continental Europe, but presumably we've got European spies operating in Britain and elsewhere as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. So the threat again in the 1920s and 30s isn't limited to, I'll say, Western Europe or any part of the world. The threat was also on UK soil because in the 1920s, the Russians were sending their agents in under the guise of communism and they were infiltrating communist organizations here like the communist party of great britain so they would kind of plant their spies and moles in there and we were trying to track them because again the ultimate aim for them is to destabilize democracy and instigate a coup or or get communism to spread so it's a direct fight Between communism and democracy, really. And then in the 1930s, you've got that threat from the fascists, from those that would support Nazi Germany, but the likes of Sir Oswald Mosley, who was a figure who founded the British Union of Fascists. I suppose one could call them traitors in wartime they were certainly arrested for a short time. They were interned in various prisons because they were deemed a security risk. So the security risk is not just behind enemy lines or across Europe in peacetime. We also have to look after security in our own country. So a lot of our listeners have wanted to ask about recruitment. So
0: Isla Asheri, FCR 77 and NCOS have all asked how spies were recruited once the Second World War broke out. What kind
2: of people were they looking for to become spies? From my research, it's clear that spies were recruited from a variety of backgrounds for a specific job because they might have a specific skill. But in the early days, the women, for example, were recruited from well-educated backgrounds, often higher classes of society. So you have the debutantes who turn up at Bletchley Park who are used to socialising and they're very beautiful and and some of them are university-educated. The men, actually, MI5 didn't recruit men from university until the Second World War, which is interesting. But it's whoever they they feel would be helpful for the job. So if someone's going to be quite useful to be sent behind enemy lines, might have that kind of courage. Or if they had knowledge of languages, particular languages would be useful for intelligence work. They were recruited. But also in the early days, you had to know somebody already in intelligence so that you have that trusted element. You couldn't just apply. If you've got to know somebody or perhaps be
0: a debutante, it's all about informal networks. Does that mean that most of the spies came from the upper classes, really?
2: not totally in the very early days most of the early spies particularly of what we call today MI6 were from a military intelligence background they'd served in army uniform in the boer war so this this of course ended in 1901 in south africa and they went on to found MI6, essentially, and they fought in uniform in the First World War. So they were military-style gentlemen and not the likes of who we would think Kim be the Cambridge spies, Mm. recruited from universities. So they were, I think, and this is perhaps where I disagree with some historians who have located our spies and traitors as being of a particular class. And I'm not quite sure that's true from my own research, that those early... Spies and spy masters in particular had served in uniform, attached to the intelligence corps in, in wartime. So they were from a good long tradition. They were well educated, some of them from private schools, but not many of them university educated. They went straight into intelligence.
0: But essentially, you're not heading down to the recruiting office and saying, I volunteer to be
2: a spy. No, in fact, there was one, <laughs> one of the double agents did that and they thought he was a German plant. They thought, oh, the Germans, it was just too obvious the Germans have put him there. In fact, there was a very young woman, Dede de Andre de Jong, who founded with another family, one of the escape lines across Europe, the Comet line from Brussels down to the Pyrenees. And she made it over the Pyrenees with three airmen. And at one point, she turned up at the British Embassy wanting help, saying, I want to set up this escape line. And they didn't believe her. They thought, oh, gosh, right, the Germans have turned her, they've planted her. So, So if you just were right, completely up front and said, yes, I'd like to work for you as a spy, that was deemed incredibly suspicious. Of course, of course. So when people were recruited, what kind of system
0: were they recruited into? How did these spy networks operate generally?
2: Well, many of those that served in intelligence in the Second World War were linked to particular forces. So the women, for example, would be in the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the ATS, or the uh, Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Uh, we think or they were the Wrens. And the same with the men, they might have a primary regiment. And then because they have a particular skill, maybe they've, been, they've grown up in Germany, they have fluency in German, they're transferred to an intelligence unit. And it might be Bletchley Park or it might be one of the other ones. But they were used um, for whatever uh, they needed to be used for. In some cases, they were useful for helping to run the deception operations from London. And in other cases, they would be dropped behind enemy lines. So it's a huge, huge area and they could find themselves in any branch of military intelligence it could be MI9 that i've talked about it could be MI8 that was the radio security service and they were listening into some of the german traffic and they were linked to bletchley park could have been part of mi6 so yeah there was a lot of choice it could have been in air intelligence doing the equivalent for the air force or the navy and so within those those teams those
0: networks how much would one person know about the broader picture of espionage? Would they only know about one specific mission they were working on and would they only know a couple of other people?
2: Knowledge was limited and that was really important because, and that that was whether you were going into the field behind enemy lines or whether you were working in the UK, because particularly if you think of all kinds of networks, the SOE networks, particularly in France, that were decimated by the Germans. The Germans were very successful in breaking them up and capturing our agents. They were also very good at breaking up the MI9 escape lines. So the the more people knew about each other, the more they could break under interrogation and give away the network. It was really important that we kept everything as separate as possible, And some of the veterans that I interviewed that worked in intelligence here in Britain, one couple in particular, Fritz Lustig, went on to marry his wife who worked on the same site, Susan. And although they worked for the same secret branch of military intelligence, they were listening to German prisoners of war. They never discussed their work. They were working in separate buildings. And this will be a familiar story with veterans of Bletchley Park. Even if you work on the same site, you don't necessarily know what the person in the next hut is working on. So next we have a question
0: from Rumham on Instagram, who's asked whether there was a lot of innovation in terms of espionage in this period or whether people stuck to
2: tried and tested methods when the war broke out. It had to be a development. There were some elements that were carried forward in some aspects of human intelligence, I suppose. Some things never change. If you have the charm offensive and the cocktail parties and try and charm secrets from somebody you think is going to be useful. But yeah, there has to be a level of adaption and innovation. And I guess that's true for every situation every wartime the gadgets are particularly useful the mi9 gadgets they're really important because we have to find ways to help our prisoners in prisoner of war camps and so we smuggled for example tiny compasses into the camps and every airman and soldier had a little compass on the top button of his uniform it was hidden behind and you accessed it by unscrewing it the wrong way And that way the Germans never found those particular compasses. But MI9 had manufactured 1.6 million compasses for the wartime. These little things that were sent in, but they were so important. I mean, the big clumpy army compass would be taken away immediately. So those kind of things, I love those tiny gadgets that they don't change the course of the war, but they're absolutely necessary to getting our guys back to fight another day. Well quite a few of our listeners wanted to know more about gadgets are there any other than those um compasses that you wanted to highlight oh yeah Do you know i think my favorite <laughs> my all time favorite is the assassin pen now i it took me i didn't know about this for quite a long time until somebody contacted me and said amongst my relatives belongings at the end of the war so after she after she passed away There was a basket, and in her basket she had all sorts of things, like a little bit of um, wool from her knitting and all kinds of glasses and stuff. But she had an assassin's pen, and it looks like an ordinary pen. Then when you open it, it's got this really sharp knife in it. And of course, the question was, well, I don't know the answer actually. But the question was, had she ever used it? So, oh my gosh, had she ever used it? And the other one, I think, which comes close which our listeners may have heard of, was the exploding rat. And this was actually made for SOE, for the Special Operations Executive. And they would actually get a dead rat, and it, of course they stink, don't they, dead rats? And they would hollow, get you know, it would just be the carcass, and that would be filled with plastic explosives. And the rats would be put near boilers and things that would explode and cause more damage. But unfortunately the Germans found the first shipment of this stuff. And you might think that that was a failure, but you know what it actually did? And I think this is why it's so clever and part of the deception. The Germans thereafter were absolutely convinced we were going to keep sending these dead rats in with explosives. And as a result, They spent most of the war looking for these dead rats, which we'd stopped putting together. So actually, the intelligence services deemed that to be quite a success because it was wasting German resources and they aren't fighting us. They're busy looking for dead rats. (laughs) I love that story. The assassin's
0: pen, I think, takes us on to another question we've had in, which is just about how dangerous it was to be a spy. It's obviously quite difficult to quantify, but would you say that it was much more dangerous than being
2: in the army or the navy, for example? I think if we separate danger from the chances of survival... Of course, you know, when you're fighting in the services, there is always the chance, you know, in advance, you know, you could lose your life on the battlefields or at sea. But the risk for the spy is greater in the sense that if they're captured, they are not going to be treated as prisoners of war. They're going to be treated as spies as agents of the enemy. So if the Germans are catching us, they'll be seen as agents of Germany, against Germany, and they will be executed, shot, horrifically treated in in concentration camps. But our airmen and soldiers, if they're captured, they should, didn't always happen, but it mainly happened, that they were treated according to the Geneva Convention and treated as prisoners of war. So the risk for the spy was... That much greater in terms of personal safety
0: still to come on the history extra podcast
2: the germans knew we were transmitting messages and they were trying to catch them and of course devastatingly she is captured in september 1944 and ultimately she dies in dachau
1: and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: As to Prasad on Twitter has asked what the average rate of success for espionage operations was, is there any way of
2: us knowing? It's really difficult to quantify and the only way you can really do it is for historians like me (laughs) to spend years, uh, months and months in the National Archives looking at particular intelligence operations and seeing where they impacted on the war. So it's hard to say, and I think there's a movement away from saying this shortened the war by two years, this shortened the war by six months, I think it's really hard to say that anymore. But one area that I have written on primarily is my book, The Walls Have Ears. And this was the whole bugging operation of German prisoners of war. And when I started out, I had no idea I was answering a question by one of the secret listeners. Did we do anything that made any difference to the outcome of the war? So I started with a completely clean sheet and I worked through tens of thousands of declassified bugged conversations and I pulled out some of the big pieces of intelligence in that book and showed the link between what we overheard particularly from captured German generals and for example knowledge of the sites of the V1 and the V2 hit the secret weapon programme. That's, that's the big one we can trace. But there's tonnes of intelligence, which you realise we know about the war at sea, that must have affected the Battle of the Atlantic. So our historians, and I've said this before, need to start working on that material. And I think also the official historian at Bletchley Park David Kenyon, he's now started to look at some of the, the later intelligence gained at Bletchley Park and the impact on the war. And that's what we're still working on as historians. So we can't give you a percentage, but we can say that there are key operations that absolutely affected the outcome of the war, and it did shorten the war. And I'm
0: guessing, though, for every you know overhearing about a V2 rocket location, you also have a dead rat filled with a bomb that's instantly busted. So I'm guessing that there was an idea of you've got to try a lot of things and some of them are inevitably going to fail.
2: Yes, I think no one believes that everything can succeed. But with the escape lines again, those I found very, very inspirational because they did go down and whole groups were rounded up families. If one person was working for an escape line and the Germans found out, the Gestapo would round up the whole family and sometimes their friends and their neighbours, they would shoot them all or send them to concentration camps. So the, the risk was there, but still they were prepared to start up again. And I think that's also something which runs through the British intelligence operations, that you don't give up. It's not an option to give up. It's almost like Swimming three quarters of the English Channel, deciding you've had enough, it's not going to work, and, and swimming back again. Well, actually, you've got, you've got two thirds of the way there. So you, know, you have to throw everything at it and also find creative ways in which you can make a difference to your outcome of the war.
0: And are there any really notable failures that you would highlight?
2: I think one of the key failures, it comes just a couple of months into the war, actually. It was known as the Venlo incident. And Venlo is a place on the border between Holland and Germany. And our MI6 officers, a couple of them, were sent to Venlo because the Germans were reaching out as allegedly anti-Nazi generals wanted to try and make peace with Britain. And we were only just into the war. And, of course, nobody wanted this to be a long war and any chance that these generals would get together and mount a coup against Hitler, we've got to give it a chance. But actually, some of the intelligence should have told them that this was actually a sting by German intelligence. It was one of the few successes by German intelligence services, and our two men, Best and Stevens, ended up in concentration camps. They did survive the war, they were very lucky, They survived the war, but they were effectively in a concentration camp for about five years. But that was actually uh, serious because it was believed that a lot of the MI6 agents were given up under torture. We don't know for sure. We absolutely don't know for sure. I'm not sure whether they did it. The evidence isn't clear either way. But the intelligence services couldn't take a risk. MI6 had to recall all its agents and operatives from Western Europe for a short time at a time when we needed intelligence. We needed them on the ground and for their security, they were recalled to London and we had, we were fighting blind largely until about the end of 1942 when things started to get going again. So all the spying in that period on Nazi Germany from November 39, the Venlo incident to the end of 1942 had to come from operations from within Britain. And that was the likes of Bletchley Park. And the bugging operation that I've written about, the intelligence we gained unwittingly from German prisoners of war by embedding microphones in their rooms. So we've
0: spoken quite a lot so far about British intelligence efforts. But Naomi Warwick and MHFQ on Instagram have asked about the difference between intelligence efforts between different um, nations. They've asked whether there's one country whose intelligence efforts were significantly better or worse than the others.
2: Well, that's a really interesting question because it does require uh, in-depth knowledge of different intelligence services. And there is more work being done now by historians on the German Secret Service, on the Abwehr. There's a new book out by Nigel West called Hitler's uh, Nest of Vipers. It's about the Abwehr. And he's quite open about the relative successes of German intelligence, and some of that's new to me and that's been challenging, so that's been good to be challenged as a fellow historian. But ultimately, I am going to have to say, I think there's nothing like British intelligence. I think we just smashed it. We understood the psychology of the enemy in front of us, whether it's Russian in the 20s and 30s, whether it's Nazi Germany in the 20s. We found clever ways to understand how are we going to get intelligence from them. It's not because I'm patriotic, it's not saying, well, I would say your own country. But I do think we have we think outside the box, we have huge successes in the Second World War. That's clear. But just to return to that point of
0: German successes in intelligence, Eli Stefan Mendelech and Alex Plotkin have both asked about the successes of German intelligence. You mentioned the, the Venlo incident. Yes. Are there any other incidents that you would you would raise?
2: Yes, one earlier one, which was the most serious incident ever to befall MI6, the Secret Intelligence Service, in its first 30-year history. This was August 1938, and it was the arrest of Thomas Kendrick, a British spymaster, worked for MI6 in Vienna. I've written his biography. And the Germans actually planted a double agent within Kendrick's network. And Kendrick actually survived for 13 years without being uncovered, unmasked. But the Germans knew there was an English gentleman. They called him the elusive Englishman that worked out of Vienna, but they couldn't catch him. And it took a double agent to betray Kendrick. And it was described, Kendrick's arrest by the Gestapo in August 1938 was was described as the most serious catastrophe to befall the secret intelligence service in its first 30-year history. So the Germans played the long game. They penetrated the networks. Kendrick made one fatal mistake on the well, it wasn't fatal for him, fortunately, but one devastating effect, and that was the fact that he met that double agent on one occasion. And that was something he never did. But London said to him, yes, you can meet him. So in one of the streets, Favretzenstrasse in Vienna, he met him, and then he was tailed by the Gestapo. But the Gestapo didn't arrest him for several months. They just kept watching him. And the seriousness in 1938 when Hitler's preparing for war, and we aren't really ready. Like with the Venlo incident, all the MI6 operatives were believed to have been blown. And they were recalled to London at a time when Czechoslovakia could have been invaded, we needed intelligence. So those, for me, are the two big successes. I'm not really sure that the German Secret Service made any Real successes in the Second World War. And again, it's an area I want to do more research on. But it was headed at one point by Admiral Canaris. He was the German head of the Abwehr. And there are rumours, thoughts, whisperings that he was actually working for us. And so that's why German intelligence never really succeeded in the wartime. So I'd love to do more on that one day. We've spoken quite a lot about
0: Europe but I wondered if there were any operations perhaps in North Africa or the Far East or the Pacific arena that you think we should also highlight.
2: There was, of course, intelligence operations wherever we operated in wartime, and that included in North Africa. There were... Uh, agents who were sent behind enemy lines in German uniform, for example, and that would be in whatever theatre of war, and in the Far East as well. We had various groups of codes and ciphers in, in Italy, well, everywhere. And the Far East, MI9 operated in the Far East. It was much more limited because in the Far East and the Pacific, that was primarily the domain of American intelligence, And although we shared intelligence between us, primarily it was the American equivalents that were working in those areas, which is probably why we don't really hear of the same kind of Operation Mincemeat happening in the Far East under the watch of British intelligence.
0: So turning now to France, Mike Metcalf on Facebook has asked about the undercover work of the French resistance and how effective it was.
2: Yeah, they were incredibly brave. Some of them, of course, we know, turned out to be collaborators, but those that actually worked for the French resistance were incredibly brave. And in some sense, although they'd never really managed to sort of liberate their own country, but what they did do, they were able to work with SOE behind enemy lines in, in all kinds of operations, in sabotage, in intelligence operations, so courier intelligence around, uh, also helping ahead of the D-Day landings, preparing behind enemy lines and all kinds of particularly destruction. I mean, the RAF destroyed a lot of the rail links just before D-Day in France. But those successes of Normandy, although they were slow in those first few weeks, they would have really got bogged down without the sabotage efforts and the clandestine operation of the French resistance. So they were incredibly brave. And you have women that would cycle around enemy-occupied territory doing what simple tasks of communication, but incredibly dangerous, actually, if they're caught. And they would also shelter spies, agents, airmen and soldiers, incredibly dangerous. And they really did put their lives on the line, and I don't think we should underestimate. For me, that's a really inspirational part of these Second World War stories. The men and women who simply of all ages were prepared to risk their lives for our freedom. You mentioned there the SOE, and we've had a
0: question in about Churchill's involvement in um, espionage. A question in from Dennis McCua, who basically wants to know about how he
2: um, headed up espionage efforts against the Germans. Oh, Churchill loved all this. He loved the unorthodox. He authorised the setting up of the Special Operations Executive to set Europe ablaze. But he also loved all those deception operations. He used to read some of the transcripts of the bugged conversations at bedtime. We know that. That's in the intelligence reports. That's bedtime reading. Uh, He used to love the whole deception and communication stuff that was coming out of Bletchley Park. But there were some things... We didn't always tell Churchill because he got overexcited and there was a risk that he might actually blurt it out in Parliament. We don't tell Parliament. Parliament doesn't need to know about these secret operations. It's a need-to-know basis, only those that need to know. But, yeah, Churchill really was behind The support, really. He was the prime minister we needed in wartime because he knew that we would have to get into ungentlemanly warfare, if you like, those unorthodox methods. And that went as far as the Special Air Force uh, Service, the SAS. And I hope listeners have been watching SAS Rogue Heroes. Absolutely brilliant. Really enjoyed that. But you see, without Churchill supporting that... I think the outcome of the war would have been very, very different. So Churchill was pivotal to the success of intelligence, actually. And Churchill's
0: embracing of this idea of, as you called it, ungentlemanly warfare is really interesting because espionage, where did it stand within the Geneva
2: Conventions? Well, technically, under the Geneva Convention, you're not supposed to bug people's conversations. So there's a fine line, of course, that the, the really... A central one, of course, is treatment of prisoners of war. But all sides were kind of getting quite close to the line with regard to other operations and deception operations. So, yeah, it's it's understood that in wartime, there is inevitably going to be espionage. But what you can't do, according to the Geneva Convention, is obviously shoot operatives of enemy nationality.
0: Next, I wanted to ask you about the stories that everybody loves from the Second World War, these extraordinary and audacious spy plots. What what are some of the most exciting stories
2: from the Second World War? Well, I think if you want to pick out an individual, it's very difficult from that whole vast array of operations. But for me, one of the heroes is actually the dead body that was floated up off the coast of Spain in 1943, uh, Operation Mincemeat. And Major Martin, as he was dubbed, this poor chap who'd had a difficult life in society, was homeless, had accidentally, as far as we could tell, eaten some rat poison, we're back to rats again. Um, And when British intelligence needed a body to float off the coast of Spain, the coroner gave them this chap and naval intelligence dressed him up as a Royal Marine, smuggled his body in a special casket that was made that was airtight. So he wouldn't deteriorate strapped around his wrist was this, a uh, wonderful briefcase full of secret papers and even in his pocket a picture of his girlfriend. I just love that whole creation, that theatrical stage set. But, they, of course, they didn't know if it was going to work. Would the Germans swallow it? And they did. I remember seeing in the original Operation Mincemeat files, declassified now, at the very end it says, Operation Mincemeat dash swallowed whole. So that was the code back that, yes, the Germans have bought this. It's wonderful. And what was the
0: intention? What was the, the, the false picture that they were trying to create that the Germans fell
2: for? This was to convince the Germans that the Allied invasion in the south would actually take place in Greece and not in Sicily and Italy. And the importance, because the Germans weren't stupid, they knew we would make landings. And Sicily in Italy was an obvious one, but Hitler kept some of the battalions and forces, reinforcements away from Italy and Sicily. And you imagine if you're landing your forces in that area, you want the enemy reinforcements to be as weak as possible or as little as possible. So extra forces were sent to, to Greece and You know, how many of our men would have died if this deception hadn't actually worked? So
0: next we've got a question from Song Hatak, who's asked about who some of the most
2: famous Allied spies were in this period. Well, the women of SOE, isn't it, are very, very famous. You've got Noor Inyat Khan. You've also got other ones that were... Drop behind enemy lines into France. Recently, a light shone on Vera Atkins, who sent the women behind enemy lines into France. Ian Fleming, we mustn't forget Fleming. He worked for Naval Intelligence, and he seems to be everywhere in the central intelligence operations of the wartime. So he's got some of his teams at Bletchley Park. He's got some of his teams at the bugging sites that I talked about earlier, where we're bugging German prisoners of war and Hitler's generals. He's involved in the special smash and grab unit, the 30 assault unit, the commandos. He's training them for towards the end of the war. He's kind of everywhere. And he's, he does initially sign off an idea that later becomes Operation Mincemeat. So I'm often finding him in all kinds of places And GoldenEye, there is actually a file that's now been declassified called GoldenEye, and it's about secret operations surrounding Gibraltar. And again, Fleming's pen is on it. He's used the inspiration of wartime to bring us some of the most enjoyable fiction, I think. He's not the only one, of course. You mentioned a few women there, and Jamie Gartside on Instagram has asked
0: about the role that women played in espionage. How important were they as agents,
2: and what kind of roles were they taking on? If we think, I'm only going to focus on MI9, if that's okay. And for me, these are the the young women, some of them as young as 16, who are working on the escape lines behind enemy lines. They are risking their lives for us to save our airmen and soldiers, to bring them back to fight again. But also, there are young women like Michu, who actually lasted until just before D-Day, was smuggling intelligence out, and her life was at risk. The MI9 knew that the Gestapo were after her. They smuggled her out safely over the Pyrenees into England. So these are the families, and some of her colleagues, like Elsie Maréchal, I've written about, she and her family were arrested by the gestapo only she and her mother survived and they had horrific time in nazi concentration camps they ended up in ravensbrook where they were liberated but they were in a pretty bad way mother was was very close to not making it she was desperately ill elsie was 18 at the time and when she was arrested and she made it through that horrific time and so for me that's that's the inspiration these women that are doing ordinary acts but making an extraordinary difference. Denise Davidson has asked about spies from
0: elsewhere in the British Empire who performed valiantly. Who would you um, highlight there?
2: Well, I think again, let's. Let's shed a light on Noor Inyat Khan, who, well, although she was born in Moscow, she does uh, ultimately work for SOE. She's taken up by SOE. But, of course, she comes from a Muslim Sufi background, so her parents are Indian. So I think it's important to highlight her contribution. She's important because she's the first female wireless operator to be sent into France. And women had been used as couriers beforehand, and they'd been passing messages and intelligence around, but we hadn't used female wireless operators. And it was thought they could blend into enemy territory because the Germans, interestingly, believed that women should be at home or if they were wandering around the countryside, they were kind of on their way to buy bread or whatever. Very interesting psychology. And so women could pass off almost in a way that men couldn't, because men should be fighting on the front line. So someone like Noor Inyat Khan, although she went from hiding place to hiding place, she was significant for being the first female wireless operator, but also she was very skilled. She was fast and accurate, which is why ultimately SOE took her on, actually commissioned her into action, because some of her Trainers thought she wouldn't quite be up to the job, but the fact that she was fast and accurate in sending messages. And, of course, let's not forget, you couldn't transmit for more than 20 minutes because of the roving German vans. The Germans knew we were transmitting messages and they were trying to catch them. And, of course, devastatingly, she is captured in September 1944 and ultimately she dies in Dachau. She was horrifically treated but dies in Dachau. Such a young life and she'd given so much. So obviously many didn't make it through the war,
0: but for those who did, Leah Powell on Instagram has asked whether there was any kind of aftercare for spies after the war and I wonder if I could broaden that out a bit just to ask about the afterlives of these spies.
2: Well, as far as I can tell... No mental official mental health care. There were supports within their own network of friends. And from what I understand, I interview sometimes relatives of spies and they say, oh, my mother or my father had a network of friends and and they still carried on meeting, I don't know, Kendrick or Fleming or whoever. So they would have this network of support because many of them have been through this together. And in terms of the afterlife, a good many of them stayed on in intelligence, not all of them. And again, this, particularly with the women, they go back to civilian life. And it's very, very different because they're not given the roles of responsibility that they had during wartime necessarily. So they're going back to traditional roles, but there are a good number of of them men and women that continue to have a career in intelligence they are important experts
0: you've mentioned a lot of operations uh, that you've researched in the archives but conor mccreed has asked whether there are any espionage operations
2: from the second world war that are still not declassified Yes, plenty. And the point is, we don't know how many because they're still classified, but now and again we get a little peek into the fact that the stuff is classified, especially if you get a sense that there's an operation or something and you go to ask for it to be declassified and you're told, no, I'm sorry, you can't have those papers. give you a concrete example. Going back to MI9, MI9 had a top secret section known as Room 900 and that was sending agents behind enemy lines in much the same way as SOE. It was not sabotage. As far as we can make out, they were different operations because that's SOE, that's for them to do. But the operations by the agents of MI9, Room 900, were kind of intelligence operations. And they were into areas like the Baltics and Yugoslavia and around Austria and Hungary. And we only know about those that didn't make it back. And there's a very slim file about them saying that they've passed away and there's things to sort out. But it doesn't say what their operations are. And their operations have never, ever been declassified. Why do you think that things still are classified all these years on? It could just be sensitivities. It could be some names still in those files. Who knows that veterans that might still be alive, people they worked with. It's very hard for us to know. And sometimes when files are declassified, we look at them as historians and think, what was the fuss about? But of course, we don't know. We don't know. And there'll be plenty of operations from the Cold War upwards to today, which may never be declassified or it might take a very long time for some of them to be declassified. And something I'm often asked is, when will MI5 declassify this? When will MI6 declassify that? MI5 occasionally releases a tranche of material, not quite sure what their criteria is, but we're lucky the whole tranche gets sent to the National Archives, we all get very excited. MI6 never releases its files. I've had no access to MI6 files. So there's not a 50-year rule or a 30-year rule. That's for some of the other papers that's not espionage. So we have to find other ways. And also we have to be responsible, I think, to tell the stories we're allowed to tell. Finally, I wanted to put a question that we've had
0: on Instagram to you. Has the influence of spies in the Second World War been over-exaggerated? I think I know what your answer to this is going to be already.
2: What do you think my answer is? No. Absolutely right. Absolutely. No, it hasn't been. And the more that we delve into the intelligence files, the more I find it just totally, not only exciting, but inspirational. I don't. None of this has been exaggeration. Of course, when it goes to drama and films, a little bit at the edges, maybe a bit in the middle, it gets exaggerated. But that's important for us to appreciate and, and love that history and those stories. But in terms of what historians are writing today, the mainstream historians, you don't have to sex up this stuff. It's exciting in itself. And I'm really pleased that there's a whole body of historians now who are telling things as they are. There's no need to put the fluff on this. These operations are as exciting as when we first discover them.
0: That was Helen Fry. Her books on World War II intelligence include MI9 Escape and Evasion, The London Cage, and The Walls Have Ears. For plenty more on the Second World War and the history of espionage, head to historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.